John chapter 6, verse 41 to 44, and verse 60 to 65. This is God's word. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, we are continuing our series on the doctrines of grace, also known as tulip. Uh, if you're here for the first time, uh, I'll, I'll try to take some time to explain uh, what, what that means. But, you know, next time I preach, I think I'm going to bring an actual tulip with me to display as a prop. You know, why did not I think about that earlier, right? Um, I think that'd be a cool thing. Anyway, uh, some of you may or may not like it, but this is a doctrinal series where you'll need to work your brain muscles a little bit more. And sometimes I believe it's, it's good that we do this so that we could be clear about uh, what we believe as a church. Right? I think that's important to do, right? Uh, especially in this day and age when you know, people, they just choose to believe whatever they want to believe based on their feelings or their personal preferences. That's no good. So we have to be clear about what we believe as a church. And so this kind of doctrinal series is necessary at times. With that said, uh, here's a, let's see, do we have this ready? Okay, there we go. Um, it's meant to be scripture pages, okay? We got a summary there. On the left column, you have the five points for Arminianism. Uh, that was based upon Jacob Arminius's work that I highlighted for you last Sunday. His uh, followers helped formulate those five points. And in response to those five points, uh, the church at the time uh, came up with five points of Calvinism. Uh, which, you know, each point starts with a particular letter, and those letters form the acronym TULIP. Okay, and so last Sunday we covered total depravity, and today we're jumping to the I, uh, because we said we're covering this in order in which we generally experience them. Okay, so last Sunday we talked about what it means to be uh, totally depraved, or I think uh, the expression that a lot of people like is total inability, uh, and then I, today is, it's like once we, once we experience uh, this, con I guess once we encounter our depravity, uh, we realize that we no longer want to resist God's call to repent and believe. And so that's where we are today. Uh, I'll go over the, the rest 
in the following weeks. Okay, I thought, I thought these categories would also be very helpful. Uh, and there are certain theological categories that really are beneficial, and if you've never heard of these, then I think it will, it will help you understand Scripture better, okay? I think one, one reason why sometimes you get confused when you're reading the Bible is because you don't have these helpful categories to kind of organize thoughts and systematize ideas, all right? So this comes from St. Augustine. Uh, it's known to be the, full, the fourfold state of man. I have a hard time pronouncing that. The fourfold state of man. Uh, I learned this when I was probably later, I guess, an older college student, so I was late in college. And let's see, basically it divides, you, you can look at these four things as, as the four chapters the way I, I outline, I like to outline scripture. So, so if you want to outline scripture using just four words, that's a helpful way to do it. So creation, right, the fall, you got redemption, and then you got future glory where we will meet Jesus again in heaven and all will be well. So creation, fall, redemption, glory, okay? But then along with these, let's see, chapters, the state of our being uh, changes, right? There's a di difference in, uh, how our hearts operate, and a lot has to do with uh, sin's effect upon us, okay? And so in creation, the first chapter, uh, you have, this is a pre-fall state, right? So this is before sin entered the world. You have Adam and Eve, uh, representatives of humanity. Uh, they were in a state where they were able to sin, but also able not to sin. So they had greater freedom of will than uh, those who have been affected by the fall uh, did, okay? They had greater freedom. So they were able to sin, able not to sin. Uh, why? Because sin's effect wasn't um, ingrained in their living at the time. And so, but once they sinned, right, once they uh, gave in to their uh, desires to rebel against God, uh, that brought upon corruption. And along with them, all of humanity Right, was affected by this sin. We can, we can say that we were inf infected by this virus of sin, right? And that led us to chapter two, the fall. And so everything changes here, right? We are no longer as free as we once were. In this post-fall era, uh, we are not able not to sin. I talked about this, what, last Sunday? Total depravity, total... So the idea of total inability, uh, it has its application here mainly in the fall, okay? We are unable to recognize God and Jesus as beautiful and worthy. We are unable not to sin. Everything that we do is sin because we don't have the capacity to recognize what is true and good. All right, uh, let's see, what else can I say here? Oh, I wanted to kind of touch upon this a little bit more. If you came out of a different tradition, you may have heard the expression uh, prevenient grace, okay? I grew up in a Methodist church. Uh, they threw around that concept a lot. Other traditions, not many of them, but some do also, prevenient grace. So if, if you're sort of from an Arminian background, whether you know it or not, you, you may have heard this term. If you haven't heard it, that's fine, okay? But the concept at least is very common. Uh, and it, it basically... Uh, explains our existence in this way. It's like, even in this chapter two uh, state, this era of, of post-fall, God has given every person, no matter who they are, 
a prevenient grace so that we are partially, or not, we are partially regenerated and we're given the capacity right, to do good, genuinely good. Uh, we're given the capacity to even respond to God and, and love him, right? every single person. So it kind of elevates everyone to this equal standing. Uh, everyone has like this, the same starting point. Right? That's how the, the world likes to view things, right? This egalitarian sort of perspective. But that, that's how uh, it seeks to explain the world. And so you have um, this idea that all, this grace is given to everyone, irrespective of their background and where they are. Now, that may sound good to you, uh, but I, I want to strongly push back and say there is really no biblical basis for that kind of reasoning. Right? I challenge you to look at Scripture and, and sort of like, Prove to me that, that that's what God's word teaches, okay? And as Christians, I, I really hope that you would not simply argue based on your own rationale or reasoning or what makes you feel good or, or what's like, you know, what's palatable to the people out in the world, but that you would really base your arguments on scripture. Because truthfully, we shouldn't really care about what our opinions are, like humanly, right? I, I don't know, I don't really want to know what your human opinion is, and, and you should not really want, you know, me to just spout out what my opinions are. You would really, you should want me to, you know, come out and stand on this pulpit and, and speak God's opinion, right? That's what you expect of me, and I expect the same from you, right? If you want to make any argument, don't just say, well, I think that this sounds better, or I think that this is, no, I don't care what you think, honestly, ultimately, right? I, I, I want you to immerse yourself in Scripture and try to understand what God says about life and about your state, about what you are as his child, right, or as a sinner, right? That's what I want you to unpack. That's, that's our calling as his, his people. And so, uh, prevenient grace, if you, if you heard it, know that that's not what we believe, all right? We think it's a, sort of a man-made thing and has no gra grounding in scripture. Uh, staying on chapter two, I want to unpack this is because Pastor Andrew also mentioned something about the fact that we have free will. Yeah, we have free will, but the difference is we believe that our free will is not as free as you think, okay? And here's what Augustine says. I'm, I'm quoting from one of my mentors, R.C. Sproul. Uh, he doesn't know me, but, you know, I, I count him as my mentor. He's, he's dead now, okay? But he, he's someone I grew up uh, under, so learning theology. Augustine did not deny that fallen man uh, still has a will and that the will is capable of making choices, Right? But he argued that fallen man, uh, well, sorry, he argued that fallen man still has a free will. So there's an affirmation that there is a sense in which we have a free will, but we have lost our moral liberty, that there is a limitation placed on our free will. Right? The state of original sin leaves us in this wretched condition of being unable to refrain from sinning. In other words, all we, all we can do as post-fall people, right, not yet having been touched by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. All we can do is sin. Like I said last Sunday, that was the whole message. Uh, this, this next sentence is very important. We still are able to choose what we desire. So in a sense, there's a freedom there. But our desires remain chained by our evil impulses. Okay, so there's a bondage of the will, right? There's an enslavement of the will. There's a limitation there. So we're not as free as you think we might be, right? You're free to sin, essentially. You choose what you want, but what you choose will be sin. 
unless, we, unless you're in chapter three, right? And so going back to this slide, that's who you are until Christ comes powerfully into your life and he, he regenerates your heart, right? So there has to be a born again experience in some way, right? Uh, if you're not familiar with that language, that's okay, but you know, regardless, Every Christian goes through this born-again experience. There's a regeneration of the heart. Right? You are completely made new. You're given a new heart, new desires, new affections, new loves. Right? All of a sudden, things change. You see things differently because of God's work in your life. And so now there's this, this tension in your heart. I'm sure you felt it, right? There's, there's your fleshly, sinful desires waging war against the Spirit's desires, God's desires. You're always in battle, right? You want to do good. You know what's good now? Right? Sometimes you love what's good, but sometimes you actually don't love what's good, and you sin. Right? There's always this back and forth, and you're, you're, you're battling inside. There's this war happening, and it's tiring. I know. It's, Christian life is tiring as a result. Right? But, that, but that's the, the, the life we're called to live as we journey on in faith until we reach chapter 4, you see. Right? That's the hope we have ultimately in Christ where, where sin will be no more. And so I want you to realize that. Now, in chapter three, we have this, again, dynamic of able to sin, able not to sin, because, yeah, because we're given the spirit of Christ, new hearts, we, we can choose what is good, but not in chapter two. Right? That's my point. Not in, we don't have faith in chapter two, okay? So there, there's this change of, of uh, st or the state of our being. I uh, hope that makes sense, okay? Um, did that. Okay, now, what does irres irresistible grace mean? Let me try to unpack this a little bit by introducing you uh, two additional categories, okay? Irresistible grace is sometimes referred to as God's internal calling or effectual calling, okay? That's one category, internal or effectual, okay? As opposed to God's external calling or general calling. I'll unpack what that means, right? So now, uh, it's like this, from my own, ex own experience. And I'm sorry, moms, you might not like this illustration, but it's Father's Day today. So happy Father's Day, right? <laughs> this is for the dads. Uh, when I was younger, uh, I, like every, you know, teenager, I, I love to sleep. My body's growing rapidly, okay? It's hard to get out of bed. So when I was younger, I'm in bed, and, you know, my mom was usually the one trying to get me out of bed first, you know, and so she would cry, Juna, that's my Korean name, Juna, you know, you don't lie as you wake up. Her words, what do you think? Do you think it had an effect on me, or do you think it had no effect on me? Right? The answer is, sorry, moms, has virtually no effect on me, okay? Mom says something, <sighs> I'm still sleeping. Oh, is it, in my mind, it's just mom, okay? <laughs> it's just mom. Uh, that's, that's sort of the re reality. Uh, it's it's going to happen, moms. When your boys get bigger, they'll start, like, your, your words will have less effect on them, right? That's just how it is. But when my dad, you know, he's, he's seeing this unfold, he's not liking it, right? And all he has to do is just say one thing. Do you not? Oh, no, two seconds, right? Uh, I'm in the bathroom right away, right? Water's on my face, and I'm awake, uh, I'm, I'm like out of the door just in a couple minutes, right? That, that's, that's my father's effect on me, right? His words had that much more weight. We can say that his call was 
effectual, okay? Um, some of you sisters look very disappointed, right? <laughs> it's okay, right? That's just how God designed life to be. Now, I, I thought of the uh, biblical example of when Lazarus was dead in the tomb, okay? He wasn't half alive, guys, right? He was dead, wrapped up in cloth, okay, like a mummy. <laughs> and what did Jesus say? Right? He just said just a few words. Lazarus, come out. <laughs> That's all he said. Lazarus, come out. And did Lazarus think about it? Did he say, ah, should I use my free will to respond to Jesus, or should I use my free will to disobey? Is that what it said? No, it says, Jesus, after he said, come out, said, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his, he didn't even bother to like get rid of his mummified state. <laughs> he heard come out, and guess what? He came, that, that's an example of God's effectual call on a dead person, okay? You were dead and you responded because God made you alive, and you couldn't help but to respond. Right? That's the power of God's call, okay? Um, I think I may have missed a, a detail. Let me, let me just mention one more thing, and then I'll move on, because I think that'll be helpful. Have you ever taken a philosophy course and heard your philosophy professor say, you know, do you think God is able to create a stone he can't move? Okay, do you, think a God, do you think God can create a stone that he cannot move? Okay, and when many people think of free will, human free will, uh, they would liken it to that stone that God created that he can't move. It's like free will is here, it's just its own thing. Human free will is something God cannot touch because it's, it's God's gift to humanity. Right, uh, And so you have God's sovereign sphere here, right? his power, his authority, and then you have somehow human free will sort of detached from God's sovereignty. And it's like, you know, God can't control this because this is just, it's sacred to us, right? And so God is here, and he's just hoping that, you know, Paul would respond to his grace. I really hope that Paul would hear the gospel and respond, right? Is, is that your outlook of life and how God operates? Well, that, that's sort of a, a picture of human free will that I believe is very distorted and deficient, okay? So there, there is that difference. That, that's what the Arminians hold to. Uh, that's what we would say, no, that's, that's not human. We, we believe the sovereignty of God encompasses all things, right, including the will of man. Uh, we have here... A few examples, let's see. Uh, let, me, so let me come back to the idea of there is this general call of God, okay, and then there is effectual call, okay? So we have one example of this in 1 Corinthians 23, chapter one, verse 23 through 24. Uh, I would say a classic example, okay? As, but we preach Christ crucified. Okay, think about what preaching is. Right? When I preach, does everyone 
immediately respond like Lazarus responded to Jesus? No, of course not. Some of you have been here since 2009, right? And you're, you're still like, eh, okay. Some, some, some people left. Some people who were with us in 2009, some are no longer Christians, right? Why? Because the preaching of God's word from a human preacher is more of a general call, right, to follow Christ. It's not always an effectual thing. Now, God can use it to be effectual, but it's not always like that. And so there's this distinction that can be made. But we preach is a general call, right? A stumbling block to Jews and followers. Okay, but to those who are called, this is a different kind of calling, but those who are called, it's an effectual call. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, right? That's different, has a different effect, okay? So there are two kinds of calls implied in these verses. And this is a theologian's work, actually. Don't, you know, don't, don't poo-poo theologians all the time just because they kind of write lofty words. Sometimes they're very helpful. Right? They come up with these categories that help us to process Scripture better, understand reality better, okay? They come up with these categories. I think it's very useful. Uh, an important clarification to make, in addition, and people often misunderstand this about irresistible grace, is basically this. The, 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 the doctrine of irresistible grace doesn't mean that we can never resist God. Okay, so get that out of your mind. It's not what we're talking about here, okay? Rather, it means that God can decide to overcome any human resistance when he wills. Okay, think about Lazarus in the tomb. Okay, or think about your own conversion story. And it assumes that there is no such thing as a human, as a human free will that God cannot touch or overcome. Right? That's an important clarification. Uh, and I, I bring that up because so many people misunderstand this and they, 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 they wrongly define what we believe and they say, you know, we don't agree with you. Well, well then your job is first understand exactly. See, here's an example of, of a, a church not too far from us. It's a big church, rather. I'm not gonna mention which church. Big church who had this on their website. I'm not sure if they still do, but this, this was on their website at some point. That's where I pulled it off. Uh, they wrongly define, sorry, <laughs> I should switch the slide first. They wrongly define what irresistible grace is, right? And they, they confuse uh, this idea and then they misrepresent and then they lead, lead people in the wrong way. So they say, we reject the Calvinistic teaching called irresistible grace which is the belief that man cannot, even if he wants to, resist the wooing and calling of God to salvation. Wrong. <laughs> they, they wrongly define it, okay? That's not what irresistible grace is, right? Uh, they need to be more specific. And now, if they said, you know, if they said anything about effectual call, then maybe we can take them seriously. But this is very sloppy work on their part. Instead, we believe that man has a free will and he can resist the call of God if he chooses to do so, right? Therefore, those who hold the five-point Calvinism are outside the borders of what defines who we are. Okay, so first of all, I mean, they, they misdefine it or they, they wrongly define it, and then they, now they're saying they disagree with us. This is a very sloppy word. You should never uh, misrepresent people and then kind of like dismiss them as not part of your orthodox camp, okay? Okay. Um, See, let me, 
now offer you some examples of how we can resist God's will. Because, again, we're not saying that we can never resist God's will. Of course we can, right? And here's some examples. Number one, every time we sin against God, we resist his will. Of course. Like, duh. Right? Like, who doesn't know this? Right? Uh, the theologians of old, they were not stupid, okay? I mean, it's safe to assume that most theologians in the past we're smarter than any one of us here, and so don't just dismiss them as like, you know, foolish. Take them seriously. There's, there's much to learn from the writings uh, of, of good theologians, okay? So, of, of course, every time we sin against God, we resist his will. Another example, Jonah resisted God's call for him to go to Nineveh, right? And so we can say that Jonah resisted God's will in that instance. We also have Stephen saying to the Jewish leaders in Acts 7, which got him stoned. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Another example of, of a people resisting actively God and his will. And so, conclusion? Yes, of course people can resist God's will, but that's not what we're talking about, okay? So here's some examples of how we cannot resist God's will. This is what we're talking about. So this is where we're gonna kind of camp out a little bit longer. Right? A few examples here. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, okay? He purposed something, X, Y, and Z, okay? A, B, and C. Who will annul it then? Right? If God purposes something, who can go against it? Who can cancel it? Who can reject it? The answer, of course, is no one can. His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Does anyone have the strength to contend against God and his will? The answer is no. And so, brothers, sisters, are, are you willing to say that your puny free will is somehow outside of God's sovereign purpose? Is it that is it that stone that he cannot move? John 19, or rather John 1, 9 through 13. It's a very illuminating passage. I hope you see yourself in this, okay? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Just talking about Jesus, of course, right? Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this next section, the underlying portion, is very important because it tells us what the basis, this is the basis of, of, of our, our redemption. It's the basis of why God counts us as children of God. Right? We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Talking about the spiritual birth here, okay? We're born of God, not of, notice what it counts out, right? It X's out social status, you know, your pedigree, your family ties, right? Uh, not of blood. Also, it X's out the will of the flesh or the will of man. Human free will is X'd out of this equation. This is not why you are counted as a child of God. Right? 
ultimately was because of God's will. That's why you were made children of God. That's the basis of your salvation. So I hope this forces you to ask the question, what really enabled you to become a child of, was it your decision, ultimately? Was it that moment at maybe the retreat you had in mind where you raised your hand, you approached, and someone prayed over you? See, but it was you who came to the front? Or ultimately, if you peel back the layer, was it God's will that led you to that point? Another passage Romans chapter eight, verse 29 through 30, one of my favorite passages. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Right? This is an effectual calling. And those whom he effectually called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, it's talking about the progress, the order of our salvation, okay? Do you, do you know why you're here as a Christian? Well, there was this order that happened in your life. You're, you were called to be a Christian. You were called to come to Christ. How? Well, the work of God predestining you had to take place first, you see, do you acknowledge that work? Or do you think it was all you? You were able to choose God because he chose you first. Amen? Next, next passage, Romans chapter nine, verse 10 through 16. When Rebecca had, this is really, this is like really, uh, it's, it's very heavy, no words are wasted here. And I, I can't do justice to this section, but I, I, I thought I had to include it anyway. So I'll touch upon a few things here, okay? But please try to follow along. This is really weighty stuff. It, really, it changed my life once I fully understood it. And maybe that's an overstatement because I, I don't really fully understand it. But uh, to the extent I, I did understand it, it changed my life. When Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born, a very important detail, right? They were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, right? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So it had nothing to do with what they did or did not do. They weren't even born, remember? She was told the older will serve the younger. That was God's purpose, for Jacob and Esau. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God ordained that to be. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul's response is, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so, as you all know, one common reason why people have such a hard time accepting this teaching is because they believe it's so unfair. I just like the Jews of Paul's day. 
This is how we know that what we're teaching is actually very biblical, because the objections that people would have now in our day against this teaching are the same objections that people had in Paul's day. So that's how we know that Paul was teaching the same thing. The objections are the same. See, people, people hear tulip, right, the doctrine of grace, and say, how is that fair? Right? Are you saying that God, you know, loved, really ordained, ordained some for salvation and some for condemnation? How is that fair, is the common response. And so here, the Bible challenges us to examine whether our sense of justice is actually correct. You know, Paul essentially says, how can you even make the charge that God is unfair when you should actually be thinking about how merciful he is, he is to his people, not to his people, but to people in general, you know, can't you see that if, if you ask for justice, like if you really want fairness, that there will be nothing but death for all? That's one of his points. You really want fairness? You really want justice? Okay, then. I mean, then, then you're asking for death for all. Everyone will die then. Condemnation for all. Um... I thought of this example in my own family. Uh, let's say that I show mercy to one child right, more than another child, right? And it does happen right, in different, different ways. I mean, one example would be, okay, Joshua, as you know, is their youngest. And the older kids normally complain that He's too spoiled because we don't spank him as much. And essentially, they're making the same argument here. They're saying, how is that fair? You know, when we were his age, we got spanked more frequently. Why do you, they want to use the language, but why do you show him more mercy, right? I'm sorry, but that's just how it is, right? He, he is shown more mercy. But then, you know, there, there's also an aspect of Sela being the first child. She also is given first child privileges, and so it kind of balanced out at the end. I mean, she's the only one who has, who has had her own bedroom, right? That's Sophia Envies, right? Uh, and so that's why Sophia is waiting for her to leave for college because, you know, you know so what about that, you know? So anyway, you know, the kids are treated slightly differently. Like some are shown more mercy than others. I acknowledge that, okay? Some are more spoiled than others. I acknowledge that. But, see, it would be foolish for Joshua, let's say, who has received more mercy as a six-year-old. Is he six? He's still six, okay. Appa, Dad, you know, you're being unjust for being so merciful to me. You should punish me more. You know? who, who would do that? That's stupid. He, he, he should be thanking me for showing him more mercy, which he normally does, right, I think, in his heart. And it'd also be, it'd be wrong for the one who was actually punished for accusing me of being unfair as well. This is basically Apostle Paul's argument. Because why? Because you received what you deserved. Right? You received Justice, 
That is, that is God's right. I'm not God, but I'm saying that I'm just a parallel, right? This, it's an analogy. That is God's right to dispense mercy and justice according to, what, according to how he sees, sees things, right? Uh, and so if you go to, I hope that helps. Romans chapter nine, verse 19, 21. Another objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will, right? So this is difficult. I, I know there's a lot, lot I can say here, but maybe I'll, I'll save it for another message. Uh, Paul's response is essentially, look, uh, you don't realize how much greater God is than you. I mean, I, mean, I think the... <laughs> Typical way people view God is like, he's a little bit elevated than us, but we have all the right to challenge him and his authority, you know? And Paul is essentially saying, you gotta change your perception of who God is. He is far beyond who you are, you know? Think about the gap between people and these little ants crawling on the ground, right? Anyone really think about ants when you're walking on the streets? Do you realize you're stomping on them? How dare you? How, how careless of you. No one thinks that way. If you do, then you're sick and you're mentally sick, you know? You really are. Like, you don't do that when you look at it. Yeah, I mean, you might be careful sometimes when you see a lot of insects and you don't want to step on them, but you're not like, you know, fixated on, am I, am I gonna kill an insect today? No, why? Because there's such a gap between our existence and, and ants, little bugs. There's bugs that you can't even see, actually, right? Well, guess what? There's a, a far more infinite gap between creatures and the creator, God. And if you don't grasp that, then this passage will make very little sense to you. You'll be like, what? How dare God? No, but if you understand that reality of that creator-creature distinction, then you'll be like, okay, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe God is actually greater than I thought he was. Maybe I have to rethink this relationship. You know, that, that's what Paul is challenging us to do. And notice Paul does not respond with, oh, no, 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 you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you, you can't resist his will. Don't misunderstand me, no. <laughs> he says, rather, but who are you? Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? He's God. And he has every right to use you the way he wills, right? Swallow that. I know it's not easy, right? It took me, again, a good, I would say, at least three years to kind of let this sink in. I had a hard time. I could not, again, I grew up a Methodist, okay? I had a hard time with this teaching. I'm like, this doesn't quite make sense because I was so worldly in my thinking at the time. So you know what God wants people to feel when studying these passages? I believe that God wants us to feel really the spiritual helplessness, this complete dependence upon God, also known as true humility. I want you to be humble, brothers and sisters. And it happens when you realize that you were truly once dead in your sins, like Lazarus in the tomb. And it was actually God who had to 
breathe life into you and allow you to come out of that tomb responsive to his call. Where are we here? Okay. Let me uh, share a, a, a few, a couple, a couple quotes, and then I'll try to wrap this message up. Okay, here, here's a helpful quote by John Murray, a dead theologian. In much of present-day evangelism, it is assumed that the one thing man can do in the exercise of his own liberty is to believe in Christ for salvation. It is supposed that this is the one contribution that man himself must make to set the force of salvation in operation, that even God himself can do nothing towards his end. Like this is like the stone that he cannot move. So he's just kind of waiting upon, oh, I wish Andrew would, not that he's not a Christian, but let's just imagine, okay, I wish Andrew would please, you know, respond. I'm really, I'm praying for him to come. By the way, is that how you, you know, uh, minister to, to people who are lost, like unbelievers? Is that your, like, thinking? That's like, oh, man, if, if, if he just understood that logic, if he just understood my argument, you know, if he would just listen or if he would just read that book and get it, <laughs> is that what you're thinking? Is that what you think will, you know, uh, convert that person? Or is it more like, man, I, I know that God uses arguments. I know that God uses logic, but... God, can you, can you awaken this person's heart? Can you give this person new life? Can you resurrect this person's soul? Can you regenerate this person's heart? Do, do you pray that way? And if you don't, then you're missing something in your theology, you see, your theology of grace. People need more than simple arguments. Yes, God can use us as a means, but he... People need a new heart to believe, to respond. See, everything changes if you understand this about ourselves and about what we need from God. So the, the rest you can read there and then another, another quote by uh, another mentor of mine who doesn't know me, uh, John Piper. <clears throat> There can be no salvation without the reality of irresistible grace. If we are dead in our sins, totally unable to submit to God, then we will never believe in Christ unless God overcomes our rebellion. Okay, so if you have a rebellious heart against God, I pray, see, I, I can't just, yeah, I will say, brother, sister, you have to stop rebelling. I will say that because God, God uses our, our words too, but I, I, I'm praying, God, can you awaken this person's dead heart? So what is your response to this kind of teaching, right? Does it sound biblical to you? Does it resonate with your own experiences? You know, I, I grew up in church, and I had really, for the longest time, I had little to no hunger for God's word. And so when I was younger, I even looking back, I questioned whether I was a true believer or not. I'm not sure, I may, may have been, maybe it was just a, a young believer sort of experience, but you know, from the outside looking in, like I'm thinking, maybe I wasn't a Christian after all when I was, in other words, maybe I, I didn't have like that, that regenerated heart early on, right? That's a sort of question I have. I'm gonna ask God one day. You know, church was only fun when there was fun stuff to do, you know, like, like you know, when I was younger, I like uh, 
playing sports with the guys. We'd, we'd, you know, do different activities together. When I got older as a teenager, I liked planning things, you know, hanging out with friends, and we would plan, like, fun events, like, you know, concerts or coffee houses, and, you know, I, I would, that's when I sort of learned the guitar, so we'd, we'd play together, and it was fun. Yeah, I liked those things, but when it came to, like, hearing God's word, Bible study, like, those were a bit dull for me, but something happened to me. Something happened to me when I was about 20 years old or so, roughly, and I, I don't know. I, I, there was nothing I did, right, to, to bring about such change. It was all owing to God's work. That's, that's the only way I can explain it because, again, there was nothing I did that was different. I had no control over my own internal heart life, right? I didn't, I, I can't, I can't, I couldn't control my emotion, you know? God had to, God had to be doing something within. You know, John chapter three, verse eight says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And perhaps that, that's the kind of work that God was doing in my life at the time, that I was awakened spiritually by the work of God's spirit. That gave me this, this real desire to know him, to love him, to worship him. As I mentioned last Sunday, none of us got to decide on who our parents were going to be, right? Or what year or month or day you were going to be born. Right? That first natural birth was all owing to God and his design for your life. And guess what? One of my points last week was the second birth, the, the supernatural birth, the more, mirac the more miraculous birth was up to God as well. Right? Why, why would we think this otherwise? Why would we think that the natural birth, the first birth was God, but then the second birth was not God? Right? Of course it was God. It was even more God. Th there is a contrasting way of thinking here, right? If you're, if you're sort of, if you were influenced by Arminian thinking right, over the years, I understand. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't automatically say that you are not a Christian, okay? Please don't misunderstand me. Like, if you don't think like I do, I'm not gonna cross you out and say, hey, you're, you're not a believer, okay, on this matter, Okay? But my job, brothers and sisters, as a pastor is to make sure that our church, our members are faithful, both in doctrine and life. There are people who can think like Arminians and just be confused Christians. Understand that. There is that category. There are such things as confused Christians, okay? People who have a genuine faith for the Lord but don't have it all together theologically, However, what is my job? My responsibility, is, well, at least one of them, is to make sure that you are able to faithfully walk with the Lord, both with sound doctrine and a sound life. Okay, so I can't, I can't neglect this. Right? I believe this is part of having a sound doctrine and being faithful to God with your minds. Right? Love the Lord your God with what? With your minds, too, right? With your minds, so there's a place for people from UVA. Just kidding, just kidding. I, sh I shouldn't have said that. Can you, can you edit that out, please? Yeah, get myself in trouble. Not that UVA people are all smart, I'm just saying. 
They think, they think they're smart. Um, yeah, edit that whole section out, okay? Uh, I had a friend in college, you know, we would argue sometimes, like, just friendly argument. He, he was more of an Arminian thinker. He rejected this sort of Calvinistic uh, view, and uh, you know, he basically argued, why, why can't I just live the way I want to all, all my life, okay, to seek pleasure, pursue pleasure, and then receive Christ on my deathbed? I think about that. Based on Arminian thinking that says your free will is yours to exercise, right, uh, apart from God because of prevenient grace. Prevenient grace allows us to have this free will that we can exercise freely, okay, unencumbered. If that's true, why can't I live any way I want to, pursue pleasure, and then just, when I'm about to die, the last minute, right, why can't I just accept Christ then? Right? So logically, based on Arminian theology, it makes perfect sense. Right? But then I, I push back and say, that's not the way salvation works, man. Wake up. <laughs> right? What a naive view of, of your, you know, sinful flesh. And, and God's grace. That's not how salvation works. But I'm saying, based on Arminian thinking, this is consistent with how you ought to live. Don't, don't you realize? You know, sometimes I hear testimonies of people who come to the Lord, right? And, and you can basically sum up their testimony like this. This is very common among sort of Arminian thinkers. And, and actually, one of my convictions that most of us, virtually all people are sort of are naturally Arminian, but then they realize later on in life as they study scripture that, that their Arminianism is wrong, okay? But anyway, a lot of testimonies come, go like this. My life was like this before. It was bad, you know, I, I, I pursued sin, but I found Jesus, and the emphasis is always on I or me. I found Jesus, and my life is different now, and I'm gonna do my best to follow Christ and honor him and serve the church, et cetera, et cetera. So, Again, the emphasis on I, me, what I will do, and I'm telling you that's a very man-centered way of thinking and looking at your own conversion, okay? I want you to think about it, right? Really, was it that you found Jesus in the ultimate sense, or was it that Jesus found you? I hope you can answer that it was Jesus who found you. That's what enables you to love Jesus in response. So brothers and sisters, as we move along in this series, I want to encourage you to think more deeply about your salvation. You know, what really happened, brother, sister? What really happened 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, maybe even a couple years ago for some of you? when you made that decision for Christ? What happened? Was it just you finally using your free will in the most clever way <laughs> and, and waking up from your spiritual slumber? Or was God beneath it all? What happened? And I believe if you understand it was God underneath it all, then you would be able to honor him better. I wanna have us respond with this song. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up uh, it's a very, I think, beautiful song because of the content, the words, and the music is also beautiful, but I'm gonna read just two verses from this. I, I believe the second verse is much better, okay, but I'll read the first verse anyway, so you can kind of compare. 
But the first verse goes, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. I love that part. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forever. Okay? That's okay, right? Not a bad verse. It's, it's okay, right? Okay, that's, <laughs> second verse is awesome. Please, please say it's awesome after you hear it, okay? Verse two. I, I can make this my own personal testimony. Right? I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me, through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope. And peace. That's just a beautiful summary of the Christian life. That's my own testimony as well. I hope when you sing it, you can really mean it as well because it resonates in your own heart. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, we're thankful for our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. When all we could do is resist your will, you sovereignly intervened granted us new hearts, and brought us to submit ourselves under your perfect will according to your great love and saving mercy. Who can resist your sovereign will? And so we pray that by your grace, many more who are lost would be found. Please use our church and our ministry as one of your means to save the lost as you give us the courage, humility, and strength to remain faithful to you and to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.